Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 509 with Todd Davis. Todd is sharing why many of us are bad at managing and what to do about it. So you'll learn one, where most managers fail, two, how to overcome the fear of feedback, and three, a productivity hack to keep your week from spiraling. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F509. Now here's Todd's story. Todd Davis has been with Franklin Covey for more than two decades and serves as their chief people officer. He's the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. And his most recent is called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, the Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. Todd's delivered keynote presentations and speeches around the globe, including at the renowned World Business Forum. Todd has been featured at Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, and the Harvard Business Review. He and his family reside in Holiday, Utah. So thanks to Todd for hanging out with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Todd. Todd, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm such a big admirer of Franklin Covey and the work you guys do and several of your folks over there who've appeared on the podcast. I'd love to hear what's some of the newest, latest, coolest insights coming out of Franklin Covey over the last year or two. Wow. It's a loaded question. <laughs> well, Franklin Covey, I've been here for going on 24 years now. So lots of, lots of great things during that time. Most recently, and this has been maybe a little bit longer than two years, but we're still involved in a, a big business model change where we now have uh, what's called an all-access pass model. So previously, people that would engage with Franklin Covey would um, you know, purchase our solutions or have our consultants come in for a specific solution and we still do that but now it's more of a subscription model where people have access to everything and anything that franklin covey does and we have what we call implementation specialists that come into your organization or your team and and help create these learning journeys so that's probably the biggest one of the biggest changes i've seen in my in my career here on a on a more recent change the book that i believe we're going to talk about everyone deserves a great manager the six critical practices for leading a team just hit the wall street journal's bestseller list today oh excellent so very excited about that that was uh, not why we wrote the book but it's nice to to see that validation of how it's resonating with leaders and managers and others uh, all around the world yeah well let's dig into that i think that's a beautiful vision statement to put out there Everyone deserves a great manager. So 
What would you say is sort of how well the world's doing right now, or maybe the U.S. in particular, if that's easier <laughs> in terms of what proportion of folks do in fact have a great manager and, and how are we defining that? Well, yeah, it's such a great question. You know, I was I was talking with a group uh, uh, as part of our book launch last week, and we made the analogy, you know, if you're, you get on an airplane, you sit down in the seat and you're ready to relax for a minute. And then the pilot comes on and she or he says, you know, thanks for, for flying with this. I'm not really a trained pilot, but I have an interest in flying and I may get my license one day, but, you know, relax. Welcome to good luck airlines. Your immediate response, at least mine is I got to get off this plane. Yeah. And, and while that's a, you know, kind of a over dramatic, overly dramatic analogy, this is what happens in the real world. We have good people, really good people. And according to a Harvard Business Review study, they're put into their first manager role on average at about age 30 and yet don't receive any management or leadership training until age 42, if ever. Mm-hmm. So there's this 12-year gap where they're like this pilot trying to do the best job they can, but it's kind of like welcome to good luck leadership. And our instincts and what happens in reality is we leave that company, we leave that manager. Yes, people need to be paid fair, they need to have benefits, they need to do challenging work, but but study after study shows that people leave because of their leader, because of their manager, or they join or stay because of that leader. So not only does everyone deserve a great manager, uh, if you're going to have a successful team organization, you, you got to invest in and be one. Okay. So I, I'm sold. I'm convinced. <laughs> and so then I'd like to hear maybe just to orient kind of what that looks like when someone goes from not so great and haven't been trained to really making a transformation. What's what's that kind of look like in terms of the the starting line and then the transformation and then what it looks like on the other side? And if there's a particular you know client or or, or manager that comes to mind, you'll feel free to share that story. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, when I ask groups around the world, who's ever had a bad manager, every hand goes up. And, and again, I want to distinguish between a bad person and a bad manager, but a manager who really wasn't qualified to lead people. And then, and then I talk to them about why they felt this person, what was the person lacking or what was the gap? Many different things, of course, but, but a large majority of them center around the person's ability to really empathize and communicate. Communication is like the number one thing that comes up. And so I'm not just saying that, well, if you can become a great communicator, then you'll be a great manager. But that seems to be where it all starts or most of the time. And so to your question, what is it like to go from a, a bad leadership or management situation where I, you know, I don't really have a lot of respect or appreciation for my manager to a great one. It, it starts there with someone who is real with me, communicates with me and the feeling, as you asked, what is the feeling? It's a feeling of validation, of acknowledgement, not that I'm perfect, but that the work I do matters that you care about me as a person, not just as the project leader or the frontline person or whatever my role is, but you care about me as a person. You're, you're looking through a lens of a leader's mindset versus an individual contributor's mindset. So we can, I got to be careful because I'll, I'll start to, I'm very passionate about this and I want to make sure we get all your questions answered. But, but mindset is where it really starts with. In fact, that's the, that's the first thing we talk about in the book is the importance of having a leader's mindset. Now, that piece about they really communicate, I, I saw, I think it was the Harvard Business Review study from another guest brought up. It said that the majority of managers are uncomfortable communicating 
I guess, about anything. That's right. <laughs> Which I just couldn't even wrap my brain around this study. I can understand, hey, there's some hard conversations, difficult to give some feedback or corrective, but just like across the board. So uh, can you maybe paint a fuller picture in terms of not communicating? I mean, words are exchanged, surely. So what's kind of the, the base level of, of communication that doesn't really count or isn't getting the job done versus... Uh, kind of a an example of of great communication. Like, wow, okay, this is what a great manager sounds like. Great, great question. Yeah, I've been in, I've been in in leadership roles for about twenty five years. I've been observing and coaching leaders during that time as well. And I, I think to start with, there are many reasons why the communication is poor. We don't communicate at all as managers. But those that I've worked with, the well, I wouldn't say the number one reason, but the top two reasons are they're very busy. They got a lot to do as a manager, and and that's that's cha- or that's caused by the fact that they don't have the right lenses on. They don't have the right mindset, and so they're they they view themselves as too busy to spend the time necessary with their team. That's one of the first barriers to communication. The other, and it's really a close runner up, is when you say they're uncomfortable communicating. It's because they feel like they have to have all the answers. I don't want to open up a conversation, and then my my team member that I'm leading asked me something and I don't know what to do. And both of those are incorrect ways to, to look at things. Number one, if I'm in a leadership role and I don't have time to meet with my people, I need to get out of that leadership role. That's how I'm thinking about it. I've My number one job as a leader is to get results with and through others. And so to have that kind of be a mental barrier to my to why I'm not communicating is really what I need to address. The second issue of having to have all the answers, again, wrong, wrong way to think about it. I don't have credibility with you because I have all the answers. I have or intend to have credibility with you because I know how to facilitate an engaging discussion. I know how to go and find and pull in people who will help so together we can we can find the right answers. So I'm afraid to, to discuss with someone because I don't have the right answers, or maybe I need to give them some feedback and I'm uncomfortable with how to give them the feedback. I don't want to offend them or I don't want to, you know, I just want the problem. If it's a problem to go away, Th- these are all things that get in the way of effective communication. And, uh, and we can certainly go into some examples and some actual dialogue of what the communication should look like. Yeah. Well, I think we, we may well do that. And, and so we say too busy to spend the time necessary. I guess there's probably a lot of flexibility on that range, like just how much time is necessary. But do you have a sense on terms of, hey, this much time is not enough time? Like, like what sort of the, like the <laughs> minimum uh, recommended daily allowance that uh, we're talking about here? Yeah. Well, it certainly varies with the industries we're in, with in with the with the roles we're in in those industries, with the number of people we have reporting to us. Practice number two of the book that we'll get into is to hold regular one-on-ones. And and so specific to your question, whether I'm holding a thirty-minute one-on-one with each team member every week or every other week or even once a month, while the frequency is somewhat important. It's the consistency. If I commit to say, hey, Pete, we'll see each other and work together on many things throughout the month, but I'd like us to meet once a month with the sole purpose of finding out what's working for you, what's not working for you, what can I do to help remove barriers? So could you have that in mind? And then as we get close to that time each month, I'll send you a little form that I use and you just, I want to make sure we get all of your topics addressed. You make the meeting about them. So the 
frequency and the amount of time will vary with the number of, of reports you have, the direct reports you have. But the, the most important thing is the consistency. Once you've made that commitment, if you cancel on that or you continually reschedule it or move it back, it unintentionally, and I hope it's unintentional, it, it sends a message to that person that I, I, I say I value you, but I really don't value you as much as I do this other thing that came up. Right. Yes. That, that completely resonates. And that's, I think, reassuring in terms of there's some flexibility there with regard to, to the scheduling. And if someone is frightened by the notion of, I have 18 direct reports, is like, well, hey, 30 minutes once a month, res- mathematically speaking, you know, it would result in nine hours per month out of maybe 160 work hours doing real time math here, you know, five or 6% you know, of your, of your work day is one on one conversations. And, and that doesn't sound so, so outrageous. Uh, as I imagine, you probably get some pushback, like just that I don't have time for all this, Todd, a lot of pushback. And, and again, I go back to, are you really ready to be in a leadership role? You know, again, going back to practice number one of the book, develop a leader's mindset. I like to ask leaders and those that I coach, do you want to be a great leader or do you want your team led by a great leader? And people will pause and I've had a few people say, well, okay, help me understand the difference. Do I want to be a great leader or do I want my team led by a great leader? And it is a very subtle difference. And, and in my experience, if you want to be a great leader, you probably do a lot of really good things during the day. You add value to your company and all that. That's, that's fine. If you sh- shift that mindset a little bit and you, every morning you wake up and, and you have the mindset of, I want my team led by a great leader, then I'm looking at everything through their lens. What what do they need? How can I help Aaron reach his full potential? What does Blair need to complete this project? And and so it's again, it sounds subtle, but then it makes it not just easier, much more meaningful to say, gosh, nine hours out of my month or ten hours out of my month, you know, based on the numbers you gave me, to spend investing in making sure I understand what my team needs because I want them led by a great leader. I'm going to be much more effective. They're going to be that much more effective and engaged. And time and time again, I've seen it. Our team is going to produce much better results and much more meaningful to the bottom line. So it's it's not just a nice to have, and it's not just that everyone deserves a great manager. You, you, you've got to be a great manager to help your organization, your team stay in business. Oh, certainly. And I just think about retention. I think that's sort of in my philosophy when it came to some of my early career decisions. It's like... I think it's a it's fair statement to say that we cannot count on, in the vast majority of cases, a single employer being your source of income for a lifetime. You know, generally speaking, that is that is not the case for the majority of folks. And thusly, in, in a world where hey, economic downturns often do result in layoffs, and where where loyalty is not as strong on on both sides of the table. That that's kind of was was my takeaway is like well that I need to be in environments where I am maximizing my learning and skills development and growth in order to be employable over a lifetime, and if I'm not, then I'm, I'm kind of flirting with some some risky business. Uh, and so I think that from a business strategic perspective, uh, hey, maybe you've done the studies on this. I think there would be just a gargantuan difference in in retention and, and turnover stats for 
organizations that do this versus that don't do this. Isn't that just so, so true? I, uh, you know, there was a, a recent study by Deloitte. It's their, called their uh, Global Human Capital Trends Report, decided that 30% of workers today are engaged, 52%, I think it's, yeah, 52% are disengaged, and then the remaining 18% are actively disengaged. <laughs> I like to ask people, so what's the difference between being actively disengaged and just dis- disengaged? And it's those actively disengaged. I mean, they are really, a, um, you know, a cancer within the organization. Bringing they're going down, and bringing everybody else down with them. But but the the main thing, and to your point, Pete, thirty percent are engaged, are excited about what they do, come to work with this creative, innovative mindset, adding real value. And so, if we as leaders aren't focused on how do we keep those folks engaged and how do we raise the level of engagement uh, of others, they are going to go elsewhere and we are not going to, to succeed. I like to coach managers on, you know, thinking about their superstars, their top performers, and making sure that they know the answer to three questions on a regular basis, like, at, you know, at least once a year and maybe every six months, what's working for you? What's not working for you? What would you like to do next? And I'll have managers push back and say, okay, well, I'll ask them what's working for them, but I don't want to ask them what's not working for them. What if it's something I I can't fix? And I joke back and say, well, okay, so let's ignore it and wait until the company down the street is able to provide that or fix that, and then we lose them. Let's address it. What's not working for you? Often, they'll bring up something that you can actually influence or maybe do something about. And if it's something you can't, if it's something you can't fix that's not working for that superstar employee, if you have been asking sincerely and they know your intent really is to, to try and have a great you know, career for them or help them create a great career, just by asking that question will be a huge deposit with them and add a lot of value. And then I really get pushed back on the last question, what would you like to do next? And people will say to me, well, I don't want to plant that idea in my superstar's mind. You know, what do you want to do next? I want them to keep doing the exact thing they're doing right now because they're so valuable. And again, I I would just share with and remind people, superstars, talented people, they want to be challenged. You, You just referenced this. They want to keep learning and growing. And so if you don't ask them what they'd like to do next, and they don't have that opportunity, they're going to go to an organization that offers it. So let's find out what they want to do next. And and maybe there's a way to have them continue doing their excellent work in their current role, but also adding new learnings and and dimensions onto what what they can learn. Well, I love those three questions. And you piqued my interest earlier when you said, fill out this form before our one-on-ones. What are some of the things that that go into the form? Well, it's a, it's really, when I say it's more symbolic, it's, it's a very usable form. It's, there's a copy of it in the book, but we just want to create the idea of, look, your regular one-on-ones manager or leader, they aren't a status check of how these people are doing on their projects. Yes, you need to have that. And maybe that can be a small portion of the one-on-ones or, or preferably in another meeting. The one-on-ones are their meetings. So the form is to get them thinking about the the types of things they'd like to bring up with you as their leader. Now, leaders are are hesitant to do this. They don't want to they want to be able to control you know the conversation where things go. And while that's understandable in human nature, that's not how you're going to attract and retain top talent. So you make the one-on-one about them. 
They they fill out the things they'd like to talk about. You fill out a couple of things that you want to see get covered in the meeting, but make sure that theirs are the priority and you tell them that. We're going to go through your list of things first. And then if we have time for mine, great, but this is about you. And then you share those lists before the meeting. And really what that does symbolically and practically is it it shows the value that you are placing on them and their time and how important what their their thoughts and their opinions are to you. That it's not just, let's get together, we'll talk about whatever comes up. But no, I, as your leader, I'm going to put some thought into some of the, the things that you want to discuss. And that's why I'd like to, to know what they are in advance so that I can be really well prepared to make the most, the best use of your time and, and have given a lot of thought to the things you'd like to discuss. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. So we talked about the one of the practices, which is having the one-on-ones. Could you give us an overview of the, the other five, and, and then we'll sort of see where we care to dig deeper? Absolutely. So just to kind of keep things in order in my head, the practice one is develop a leader's mindset. Everything starts there. It's foundational, the way you think about your role as a leader. Practice number two that we just talked a little bit more about, holding regular one-on-ones. Practice number three, set up your team to get results. Practice number four, create a culture of feedback. Practice number five is to lead your team through change. And then practice number six, manage your time and your energy. And happy to talk about any or all of them. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about culture of feedback. Great. How do we do that? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Pete. Uh, and I can't see you, but I'll, 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 uh, I see a picture of you. When, uh, when someone says to you, some colleague or boss says, hey, Pete, have you got a few minutes? I've got some feedback for you. What, what kind of goes on internally? For me, it's like, <laughs> oh, boy. All right. They're going to bring it. Okay. And so I just like, I'm, I'm already, I'm already a little freaked out. So I'm trying yeah, to calm down well, a little bit. It's like, all right, Pete, even there's probably some merit in what they say, even if they enrage you, be ready with your magical phrase. Tell me more about that. Uh, w- when your brain comes reeling, uh, associated with what, with what they have to say, usually as if it's unexpected, that's it. If it's sort of like the, the regular time we have where feedback lives, maybe this is where you're going, then it's like, oh, okay, it's just what we do here. All right. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. As opposed to, uh, and it's like, so to be more succinct, succinct, I've had a listener correct me on that a couple of times. <laughs> it's pronounced succinct. Okay. Now, now I know. Thank you. It's probably... <clears throat> Uh-oh, hope I didn't screw something up too bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- thank you for your transparency and your honesty. And I'm wondering if you could travel the country with me as I give keynotes on this, because you I'm just in. described <laughs> what is going on in every one of us. I had a person in a in a presentation the other day, and I said, when someone says, you know, I've got some feedback for you. And this person said, oh, I love it. I love feedback. And I said, great. And that's what you tell everybody. And I'm sure you do. And what's really going on inside and I wasn't trying to, you know, embarrass anybody, but they said, well, I am thinking, okay, I wonder what I did wrong. And that's human nature. That's what we all think. We hear this word feedback and we think, oh crap, what if I messed up now? <laughs> and so, and, and, and while I, I believe it, and, and I believe it when I say it, when other people say it, that gosh, feedback really helps us. Our initial reaction is I've messed up. Well, feedback if we think about it, and this is very elementary, but feed means to nourish or to sustain or, or to foster. And back means to support. Just that reminder first off is, oh, wait a minute. Feedback is here to help. So creating a culture of feedback where you said towards the end of you know what you were sharing is the norm is really the goal here because we all have blind spots everywhere. The most, the most accomplished human being on the planet has blind spots. And 
If we don't have a systematic approach to feedback, getting feedback all the time, well, then we, we go through life and through our careers being less than less effective than we, than we could have been. Now, the way we go about creating that culture of feedback is, is really important. In the book, we talk about the importance of giving reinforcing feedback or redirecting feedback. And we're not avoiding the words positive or negative feedback to tiptoe around something or not call something what it is. In fact, we're trying to do just that. Reinforcing feedback. I mean, for for people who have raised children or, you know, nieces or nephews or whatever, you know, the first day they can tie their shoe or they remember to wear pants to school. (laughs) You say, Johnny, way to go. You got dressed all by yourself. And honestly, not to sound condescending, we don't change much as we become adults. That reinforcing feedback tied to a behavior continues to cement in our minds, oh, that was a good thing. And that felt good having that recognized. I want to do more of that. So so I guess the first thing I want to say here is that let's remember that feed, reinforcing feedback of great behaviors, great results, is equally as important as redirecting feedback when, when the behaviors are not where they need to be. So reinforcing feedback is critical. And, and something, just to dive a little deeper on this, While some people will think, well, reinforcing feedback will be, oh, gosh, Adam, you're so awesome. We're so glad you're here at the company or you do a great job. That's nice. And I'm sure that's well intended. But quite frankly, it means nothing versus Adam. I am so glad you're on our team. That report you delivered yesterday in the meeting, the level of detail you went to, it shifted the whole conversation. And I have noticed over the last couple of months that we've worked together, how detail-oriented you are. And boy, did that play out well yesterday. So I just wanted you to know how much I appreciate that. Adam's going to remember that feedback for a long, long time. And, and more importantly, Adam's going to continue to even strengthen his strength of attention to detail. So reinforcing feedback tied to a behavior. I had a very wise manager many years ago who, who taught me that and just said, Todd, remember, you're always very positive with people. And that's a great thing. Remember when you're giving feedback that number one, it's sincere and that it's tied to a behavior, not just that it's uh, you know, you're awesome. So that has stuck with me for a long time tell forever. (laughs) (laughs) Redirecting feedback. Things aren't going so well. This is where a lot of managers, gosh, I don't know what to say. I don't want to offend them. And they wait and wait and wait, hoping the bad behavior will just disappear or the person (laughs) will disappear. Redirecting feedback when given uh, with the right intent, declaring your intent up front can be the, the, just the most helpful thing you can do as someone's manager. Um, Joan, I really appreciate you taking time to meet with me today. I want you to know how much I value your contribution on the team. I had, and I've had in my career, managers and other people point out things to me that I maybe wasn't seeing or wasn't aware of. And it's been hard to hear for me, but it's been a huge help in, in my endeavors to be a, a strong contributor. I want you to know my only intent as your leader is to do the same for you. You have so many good things going for you. There are a couple of things I want to talk to you about that I believe are hindering your complete and total success. So please know it's with that intent that I share these with you. That's how I begin every redirecting conversation. And it's got to be sincere. These aren't scripts. This is just comes from, you know, doing it a lot and it comes from the heart. It's important 
to lower the person's defenses. When someone feels defensive, they have a hard time hearing anything you're saying. And I have found the most effective way to do that in a feedback situation, redirecting feedback, is to let them know I've received redirecting feedback before so that they're not embarrassed or humiliated thinking, oh, I messed up. Well, no, we all mess up. We all need or, or benefit from this kind of feedback. And I've certainly been there before, so I can really empathize with you. That helps lower defenses. And then making sure they know your intent. Joan, my only intent is to help you be as successful as you can be. And, and I see great potential for you. And that's the only reason I'm sharing these things. So, so that's the way, the effective way to receive redirecting feedback. Now, a third thing, and I hope I'm not rambling too long I'll here, Pete. Okay. The third thing is some managers think, oh, I'm, I've reached my manager status now. I give feedback. That's what I do. I give re- reinforcing, redirecting feedback. Well, great. But you want to, you want to have a team that just, just, reaches great heights and does wonderful things, it works both ways. You've got to seek feedback. You've got to make it safe for your team to tell you the truth is the phrase I like to use. Make it safe. Do you make it safe for others to tell you the truth? And know this, by your title alone as manager or director, whatever it is, you, it's not your fault, but it's already a little unsafe to tell you the truth. And so great managers realize that. And so they go out of their way to seek feedback. And let me tell you, a bad way to seek feedback is to show up in somebody's office and say, Hey, Pete, what did you think of the meeting this morning? How do you think uh, I'm running the meetings? Well, what are you going to say, Pete, when you're all, Oh, you're great, Todd. Absolutely smashing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And when put on the spot like that, we're all going to say the exact same thing, whatever she or he wants to hear. Oh, awesome. You do an awesome job. But a little bit differently, if, if I say to Pete, Hey, Pete, I wonder if I could ask you a favor. I'm really trying to make sure our meetings are super effective. In tomorrow's meeting, so I'm doing this today before, in tomorrow's meeting, would you mind taking some notes, making some observations of things that you think I could do better as the leader in facilitating the discussion in the meeting? I mean, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think I'm doing well, if anything, but I really want to focus on those things that you think I could do better. And then then maybe the next day or two after the meeting, we could get together and you could share your thoughts with me. That's how a manager a wise manager asks for sincere feedback and makes it safe for others to tell her the truth or him the truth. And managers who do this and make this commonplace, the next time Todd or Pete hears, hey, do you have a few minutes? I've got some feedback for you. We think, oh, great. I've got another opportunity here to learn something that I might not be seen. And it becomes the norm and nobody has that hair on the back of their neck stand up like, like we usually do. You know, I, I love those words and It reminds me of, there's a speaker, we had him on the show, Justin Jones-Fosu. And at one time, we were both doing a lot of speaking on college campuses, and that's how we got to know each other. And so so he's he's a great speaker. And then I said, oh, hey, that was really awesome. I saw him, you know, present at a conference one time. And and he said, it was so sincere, and I loved it. He's like, well, you know, hey, Pete, I really appreciate that. You know, what I'd appreciate even more is if you could identify a couple of things that you think that I could do better because that really helps me me grow as a speaker. And so I was like, oh. And I, I, first of all, I was struck that I told many speakers and I've told many people that they're awesome in many ways. <laughs> but it's very rare that someone said, hey, thank you for that. What'd be even more helpful for me is this. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. And, and so and so then I said, all right, well, you know, there's this one part where, you know, you were telling this really emotional story about someone who was ill. And and then uh, the, you actually had this music go, which was kind of emotional. Mm-hmm. And while I think that made it more emotional, it also felt a little manipulative mm-hmm. for me. And I don't know if that's everybody or, or just me, but uh, I think that... 
it would seem all the more authentic if, if that just wasn't there. Yeah. And it's like, we're not in a sort of a, a TV drama, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, he say, thank you. You know, actually a couple of people have brought that up and I'm wrestling with that right now. So it's good to have sort of one more data point. And, you know, um, that was awesome. That is such a great example. I appreciate you sharing that because you just remind me one reason why I've seen leaders and others hesitant to ask for feedback is they think they have to incorporate all of it. And I love what you said that that his response was, you know, a few people have mentioned that. And so I'm thinking about that. You don't have to incorporate all of it. But boy, I'm telling you, if I'm him and I get a lot of that feedback... I'm thinking I might want to tweak this so that it doesn't feel so so manipulative. So I'm just glad you brought that up because boy, don't don't not ask for feedback because you think, well, if I don't incorporate it, then I'm I'm disingenuous. Not true. But but you can always follow up with the person and say, gosh, Pete, I so appreciate that feedback you gave me. I'm gonna be thinking through that. And and I wonder if you'd allow me to come to you again in the future for feedback, because I've really appreciated you taking the time to share that with me. That's, that's what you need to do when you get feedback is the follow-up and the acting on it, but not incorporating every piece of feedback you receive. That's good. And just to close the circle on that, Justin happened to be for several years, sort of the, the top book speaker at the agency. (laughs) So I mean, (laughs) I I don't think it's a coincidence. One thing he did very differently than the other speakers was this, and he was number one. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I think that is, is more than a, a coinky dink. Yeah. So uh, awesome. So the culture of feedback. I also want to get, so you talked about managing your time and energy. So I, I think about this a lot when it comes to you sort of, hey, I got my day. I got the impact I want to make you know, from an individual workload perspective. How do you think about this in, in the management context? Well, here's the, and this is not news to anyone, burnout and burnout in the workplace is just, you know, certainly not going away. And it's increasing more and more. And with all of our wonderful technology options and and, and bells and buzzers and whistles, it allows us to be working, allows us, I say, 24 hours a day. In fact, I remember <laughs> when I was promoted to a certain position here at Franklin Covey, gosh, 20 years ago, and I remember saying, well, if I did this, could I have a laptop and maybe work from home once in a while when when the situation permitted? Thinking that would be such a, such a luxury. And I just mm-hmm. laugh now thinking how uh, the very thing that we were thinking was kind of a nice a nice treat has become this thing that has has chained us to our, our work responsibilities 24 hours a day. And so so burnout, it, because of our ability to stay connected and, and again, it's a choice we all make and I can't really complain about it because it's a choice I make, but, but we are connected all the time. And so because we choose to do that, if we choose to do that, we've got to really manage that time and that energy, or we will burn out. And what we model gets modeled by our team uh, what the leader values gets valued. And so again, we could talk, I, I, I do talk all day on this, but managing my time, first of all, managing my time, I liken it to a pinball machine. If I don't have a plan for the week, I show up Monday morning or whenever your week begins. And it's like the pinball machine, it, you know, the plunger's pulled back and, and I'm like that ball in the machine bouncing from, you know, bells to buzzers to whistles. And I get to the end of the day or the end of the week and I think, man, I'm tired. I have been busy. And when I look back and say, what have I really accomplished to value this week? Maybe a few things, but, but not certainly all that I could have. Whereas when I take, and it takes me about 30 minutes on a Sunday night, sometimes less, I look through my week, I go through my appointments, I go through all the things that I really hope to get accomplished that week. And then I force myself to think through, okay, if I could only get two or three things done this week, what would they be? 
And I choose those things with the intention of getting, you know, 20 or 15 or, or, or whatever done. But I choose the top two or three things. And then I have this plan on how to get that done. And then Monday begins and the pinball game starts. But I, and, and so we all get caught up in it. Urgencies happen. Nobody's week goes as planned. But if I have a plan to come back to after I've taken care of this urgency, if I have a plan, a center line to come back to, I can get back on track several times throughout the week. And I will tell you from years of experience, and, and I certainly had some weeks better than others, but I, I, I get much more accomplished. And if I model that for my team, we're all getting much more accomplished. So that's the that's what I've learned uh, in, in time management and in how to, to try and create and, and adhere to a plan for the week. And so when you say a plan, I guess, to what extent, what sort of details or, or key things are identified within that plan? Well, and again, I, I don't want to have any um, emotional music playing while I say this, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I have written what I call a, a, what we call a mission statement here that kind of identifies my values, what's most important to me. And I reflect I'll, on Sunday night, I'll look at that um, just to kind of reconnect with what's most important to me, both in my professional and my personal life, and the relationships in both professional and personal that are tied to that. And that just kind of gets my mind around, don't don't get too far off the path, Todd, of what really, why you're doing the work you're doing and what's important to you. And then with that mindset, I look through the week and I look through you know appointments that I've already committed to that are fixed in the week. And I think about based on last week and the previous weeks, the urgencies that have come up and I'm in a, I'm called the chief people officer. I have kind of a triage role and, and have a lot of unintended, you know, or or unplanned things come up. And I honestly try and block out time for those don't know what they are, but I think, okay, you're being pretty unrealistic here, Todd, you've got this date of back to back meetings. First of all, how are you going to get from one meeting to the next without any time in between? And as the urgencies come up, have you, so I'll block out some other time that's not specific for a meeting, but because I know by this time of the day, I'll have two or three things present themselves that I need to get answers back for people on. And so that that's the, maybe I'm getting too detailed, but that's the level of detail I try and get to, to have a realistic week in front of me. And then I will look at, oh, that's right. I told my daughter, Sydney, we were going to plan this trip. I'm going to block out this hour that afternoon and see if she could talk then and we'll, and we'll schedule some time around that. So, so that's just kind of an idea of, of, uh, or a glimpse into my mind of, as I'm planning out the week. Okay. So, so rather than your calendar having, Hey, a few meetings and then some space that you've got to fill it in with whatever in the moment you've sort of pre allocated those, those spaces to what's important. That's right. And at Franklin Covey, we call, we use a, a tool in seven habits called the time matrix. And there's these four quadrants and there are different names for this. It's not, uh, there, there are other um, models that are similar where you have th- these four quadrants, those things that are urgent and important, those things that are important, but not urgent. And that's what I was just talking about. And you're talking about where, you know, s- scheduling this, this vacation that my daughter's going to help me schedule. It's, important, but because it's not urgent, it keeps getting pushed off week after week. So I make sure and block time for those things that are important, but not necessarily urgent. The other two quadrants are, are urgent, but not important. These are time robbers. These are other people's urgencies. And then there's the time wasters, which are not urgent, not important. And you think, well, who would spend time there? Well, 
I have, unfortunately, when I go home and turn on a sitcom thinking I'm going to watch it for half hour and four hours later, I get up off the sofa. <laughs> oh man, it must've been a good one. Todd, what are you watching? Yeah, well, one after another, it's a, the the damage done by a remote control. So so anyway, it's, it's of these four quadrants, just really making sure if I could summarize anything in the week, have I blocked out time for those things that are important, but not urgent? And because they haven't been urgent, they haven't gotten my attention. All right. Well, well tell me, Todd, anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Just summarizing, I guess, this principle or this idea with this important fact that everyone deserves a great manager for, for those who are in or will be in a leadership position, just remembering the influence you can have in that role. You know, I'll never, I'll never forget my 35th day of employment at what was then called the Covey Leadership Center, now Franklin Covey. It was 24 years ago. I don't know what happened on day 34 or day 36, but on day 35, my boss at that time, her name was Pam. She walked me up to a senior leader in the company whom I had not met during the interview process. And, and, his name was Bob. And she said, Bob, I'd like you to meet Todd Davis. He's our uh, recruitment manager. That was what I was hired at 24 years ago. And then she said, let me tell you what Todd has accomplished during his first 35 days of employment. (laughs) And I'm shaking Mm. this man's hand, Pete, and my mind goes blank. And I feel like I'm going to throw up. I'm thinking, I can't think of what she's going to say. I couldn't think of one thing I had done in 35 days. And, and it was really this uncomfortable feeling. And then Pam went on to say he filled this position in Chicago that was vacant for the last six months. He's got a recruitment strategy for the next year. He's got a relocation policy in place. And this list went on. And please, I'm not sharing that to say, aren't you impressed with what I did in 35 days? I'm sharing this to tell you, I remember that moment, even as I'm retelling it to you right now, it feels like it was yesterday and it was 24 years ago. This leader, Pam Walsh, believed in me more more than I believed in myself. You know, very famous quote from Dr. Stephen Covey, the the best-selling author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said, leadership is seen in people their worth and potential so clearly that they come to see it in themselves. And so I guess if I could, you know, just wrap up on, on this topic with that thought, it is just that, that to remind all the leaders, whether you're in a formal leadership position or an informal one, whether you have the title or not, that true leadership is seen potential in others so clearly that they come to see it in themselves. And beautiful. Thank you. I did that with no music playing in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might add it later. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Well, that, that sounds like it might already be a favorite quote, but do you have a favorite quote you'd mention? That is probably one of my favorite quotes. I've got another one that I, that I, I can I share two of them with you? I'm go for it, yeah. Okay. One is from Abraham Lincoln. John Wooden, the basketball coach, used it a lot, but it was from Abraham Lincoln. And he said, it is better to trust and be disappointed once in a while than to distrust and be miserable all of the time. And I just... That quote motivates me to see the goodness in others, to see the potential in others, to trust and not be so suspicious. Mm, I like that. Thank you. Another quote, because you said I could have two, <laughs> is, and, and this one I've had with, you know, gosh, probably 30 years. And it's, and, uh, it's, it was from an old actress by the name of Fanny Bryce. And I, I you know, don't know that she was a mentor or anything, but, but what the words were, have stuck with me. And the words she said were, let the world know you as you are, not as you think you should be. Because sooner or later, if you are posing, you're going to forget the pose. And then where are you? Mm. And so I just, I think in the realm of being authentic and and really being who you are, I, I just, those are things I try and remember. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? 
Well, this is an old one, but people are, are very familiar with it. It's the, the, it was the marshmallow study with the kids that were observed in the room and they were told if they didn't eat the marshmallow. Do you know this study? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, Walter Michel. Exactly. Very, very familiar. But I guess why it just came to mind when you said favorite study, I haven't been asked that question before, but when you asked me that, it's just a daily reminder. I think for all of us, while I don't think about the study exactly, I think about, Todd, what do you want now versus what you want long-term? And just that that quick fix, and of course we become with technology and everything else that 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 ready now. I want everything right now mentality, and it's important for all of us, but certainly for me to remember what is it that I really want the long term result to be versus the the quick high or the quick fix. Well, boy, and, and tying that together with trust, you know, I had a previous guest who who shared another layer to that study, which I found fascinating, which was that that the study was meant to sort of assess your ability as a child to sort of delay gratification. Right. But what they discovered was one of the big drivers associated with whether or not the child waited was their historical experience of being able to trust the word of, of people's promises. Yeah. Saying you'll get more if you wait. Exactly. And so they're like, <laughs> Actually, you know what? I don't yeah. buy it. I'm going to take this now because I know it's there. I you may or may not right. be there. I remember reading that. That's, <laughs> boy, isn't that true? <laughs> and so we talk about sort of, you know, trust and leadership and investing in people. I, I think that's, that's huge right there with, with regard to they, they can do more point. of that if they have great experiences with you and, and thus multiplying all the more leaders. Ooh, good stuff. So, and how about a favorite book? Hmm. Lots of favorite books. And did I mention that everyone deserves a great manager? Just hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller. <laughs> I think that came up. <laughs> a favorite book to write. I'll tell you one that I, that I refer back to. I mean, both opening it and thinking back is Lynchpin by Seth Godin. I don't know if you've read Lynchpin. Yeah, I think I've read The Blinkist Summary. Yeah, it was a, a you know, life-changing sounds dramatic. I probably need music again behind what I'm saying. But but it really caused me to think about why I do what I do. And the book is about, you know, a linchpin is that thing that slips in to hold the pulley together. And he likens it to just the linchpin at work, the linchpin in the workplace. And are you a linchpin? And why, you know, why do you do what you do? And those people, and we all know them in the in, in teams and organizations who are really the linchpin, uh, Sometimes I think of it as the heart of the team, the organization that really keeps the team going. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Wow. Uh, favorite tool. I mean, when I say, when I say my phone, <laughs> that's nothing new for me. The iPhone, it's really not the tool. It's the, it's the plan that's within it. We've already talked about this, but it's how I plan out my week, how I have try and live my life intentionally through the week with a plan. And I'm able to do that because of the technology. So while I'll put my plan together, you know, on my, on my computer, my outlook, and then it syncs with my phone, just to have that plan, including my mission statement, all those things with me all the time. So uh, the, the portability of that, don't laugh at this, but another favorite tool that comes to mind, my kids tease me relentlessly because I got a battery operated leaf blower last year. It's like the favorite thing I have. <laughs> I that's used beautiful. to take forever to rake the lawn. And uh, so anyway, that's uh, thinking of tools. That's what first came to mind and I wasn't going to share it. And now I just did. Well, well thank you. We appreciate it. And uh, <laughs> is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks, they quote it back to you often. The one, and this you know, may or may not be helpful for people, I, I think, again, back to communication, I have found that we put off important conversations because we're afraid we're going to say it wrong. Not just in the realm of giving feedback like we were talking earlier, but but whatever. If I have a difference of opinion with one of my colleagues or a family member or whatever, we sometimes put off that conversation 
not sometimes, a lot, put off that conversation because we're, we want to just get the right words. We want it to be perfect. We're so worried about the outcome. So one thing that I've had people tell me time and time again was, I really appreciated you beginning the conversation by saying, and this is what I say, hey, Pete, I, I need to talk to you about something or I'd like to talk about something and I will probably use the wrong words. So could we just could I have a do-over? If I say something offensive or if I don't say it exactly how I mean it, just know that my intent is to get this topic out on the table. And then if, if I could have a do-over, if I, if I say it wrong, would that be okay? And that's not scripted. I've just said that from the heart for many years. I've had many people say that kind of helped set the tone for the whole conversation. So maybe it's back to the, the notion I have of you got to lower defenses. People feel defensive. It's really hard to communicate. So, so let's make sure your, def- my, you know, my defenses and their defenses are lowered so we can really get to the heart of an issue. So I guess that would be the nugget, as you call it. <laughs> well, that, that's so great. And, and because then if in fact, if it says, well, it kind of feels like you're telling me that, I don't know, I'm a terrible provider or I, <laughs> or I can't be trusted with, with major responsibilities. You, you can say, yeah, see, that's, that's kind of what I was concerned about. I, I really don't mean that at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Exactly. Pete, I, I would say, boy, if that's what you heard, I really needed to do over because I wanted to say you are a phenomenal provider, but I have noticed in, in my opinion, I've noticed that sometimes you put a priority on this thing and it's, and it's unintentionally, I think, offending some other people, you know, so you're exactly right. Uh, it gives you the, the, the language then to use in the conversation so that it doesn't blow into something it shouldn't be. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, franklincovey.com and uh, the book launched last week, uh, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. You can purchase it at all major bookstores, but easiest way to purchase it is on amazon.com. And again, they can go uh, to learn more about our company or about me on franklincovey.com. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? <laughs> Just why do you do what you do? I, th- I think about it, I remind myself of it or I think about it all the time. What's my real intention? You're the only one that knows what your what your real motivations are. And and I think those of us that, and those of you that check in with them regularly will have just that much more of a positive influence on, on yourself, on your teams, and, and ultimately on the world. Todd, thank you. This has been fantastic. I wish you all the best in making more and more people have great managers. Well, I really appreciate you and I appreciate the time, Pete. I'm really loving Todd's approach of scheduling in the important things on your week in advance, because if you don't, well, you're just at the mercy of everything else. And I think I've learned this lesson time and time again, and it was good to have Todd reinforce it. So I understand, yep, that's really the only way it's got to happen is to schedule those important things up front. And then we can allow what remains to filter into the remaining spots. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F509. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Dr. Janice Presser. She's done a ton of work and research into what makes teams effective and how you can make yours all the more effective. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.